it's not the things we have to do. It's the things we choose to do that are the measure of us. It's not what we do for money. It's what we do for love, which is really the sign of our quality as, as human beings. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life and now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. Before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone to hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today. There's a lot to talk about. We're going to discuss the important role that volunteering plays in Australian society. We're going to talk about Australia's post-COVID future and why we have so much to look forward to, even though so many of us are doing it tough at the moment. To begin with though, Tony, I'd like to get your assessment and analysis of an important new security pact uh, signed about a week ago between Australia, the UK and the US, which amongst other things will give Australia access to nuclear submarines uh, rather than the more antiquated diesel submarines. Tony, you've got a lot of experience in the area of defence and foreign policy. Can you help us understand what this deal means for the future of Australia? Thanks, Daniel. Look, this is one of the most important decisions that Australian government has made in decades. Uh, It ends uh, generations of strategic caution and it indicates a willingness by Australia to play our part in the great strategic struggles of our time. It means that we will have much more effective submarines and submarines are the best strategic deterrent that a country can have. It means that Britain is once more engaging east of Suez, which is going to be very important in terms of countering uh, a very belligerent and assertive China. And it means that Australia will play a much more significant part in the overall Western alliance in the future than we have in the past. So this is a very, very big shift. Uh, That said, the important thing is to get a nuclear submarine capability as quickly as possible. And my anxiety is that as uh, announced last week, uh, a nuclear submarine for Australia could still be at least a decade away, even more. Um, my very strong view is that if the mid-2030s was too late to get the French conventional submarines, the late-2030s is too late to get the uh, Anglo-American nuclear submarines. Tony, why does it take so long to get these kind of operations up and running? I think to a lot of Australians, we've been dismayed about Firstly, the cost, 
but secondly, just how long it takes. Um, given your experience in Parliament and Prime Minister, can you help us understand what factors are, are, are contributing to that? Is it just the example of just the bureaucracy taking forever uh, to get moving or is there something else happening? Look, uh, that's a very, very good question, Daniel. And I, th- I think there are a host of reasons why things take so long. Uh, the first is everything is much more bureaucratic than it ever was before. The second is uh, everyone is much more safety conscious than ever before. And look, within reason, that's fair enough. And the third is that we always seem now to want something which is not only best in class, but specifically designed and modified for Australian conditions. So instead of just taking uh, a ship that's in service with the Royal Navy or a ship that's in service with the US Navy, we'll say, well, we'll take that particular design, but actually we want to add this, we want to change that. And every time you add something or change something, uh, you delay. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. Well said. And what I want to reflect on here is, so we talk about our defence capabilities, but I also want to discuss and get your insights into our national self-confidence, because I think that that's as important as having the capabilities themselves. And I want to put to you a quote by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was one of the most famous dissidents of the Soviet Union, wrote the Gulag Archipelago, gave a famous address, uh, commencement address at Harvard University. This was back in 1978, but I think what he said then is more relevant today than perhaps what it was then. So I'm going to quote to you what he said and then um, get your thoughts and assessment of that. Um, And I quote him, No weapons, no matter how powerful, can help the West until it overcomes its loss of willpower, end quote. Um, Tony, our values and our belief in our values and our belief in what we're defending is surely just as important, if not more important, than the technical capabilities that we have to defend ourselves. Do you agree? Yes, I do, Daniel. But I I do want to, I suppose, take issue a little with with what you're putting to me. Uh, Solzhenitsyn made that observation back in 1978, uh, 40-odd years back, and notwithstanding the weakness of will uh, and the ambivalence and the confusion that Solzhenitsyn detected back in the late 70s, the West did go on to win the Cold War uh, and the old Soviet Union is now at one with Nineveh and Tyre. It is almost inherent in a democracy uh, where a thousand flowers bloom uh, and where a thousand discordant voices can be raised, that we will look more divided and confused than we uh, often are. And and the, fa- the fact that there are um, dissident voices in our society, uh, up to a point at least, is a strength, not a weakness. <clears throat> so while I completely agree that in the end we have to have sufficient self-belief to be prepared to stand up for ourselves, the mere fact that we often have uh, a pretty vigorous debate about our own faults and failings is not 
of itself fatal uh, to our survival. Now, the 1970s were a, a, a dispiriting time. I think the current times are uh, at least equally dispiriting, but the fact that we are focused on ourselves, introspective, uh, anxious, uh, lacking in self-confidence, uh, apparently in retreat today, uh, doesn't mean that we can't recover uh, just as swiftly as the West recovered in the early 80s under people like Thatcher and Reagan and the influence of people like Pope John Paul um, II. Just because things don't look great today doesn't mean that we are uh, in a process of terminal decline. Well, let's, let's talk about recovery. I was going to turn to this at the end, but you bring it up now and I think it's an important point that a lot of people have on their minds is, uh, yes, we're in a very difficult period of time and I think we're going to be in for you know at least a couple of more years of, of challenges related to COVID. Um, I think that there's a lot of fairly deep structural changes that the COVID lockdowns are are causing to freedom of speech, to the loss of you know small businesses, to the decline of a lot of civic institutions. But I know you've got a pretty optimistic take on on Australia's future. Can you help us understand? Use the word recovery. What will be the mechanisms that you think uh, will allow us to recover? Either you know in specific terms or in general principles. I think I think we've just been through two lost years. Um, and okay, we haven't had the number of COVID deaths that countries like the United States and the United Kingdom have had, but we've certainly suffered two years when normal life has essentially been either in suspension or under threat of suspension. Uh, for two years almost, no one has been able to make any plans in this country because at the first sign of an infection, uh, everything, whether it's a wedding, a holiday, uh, a business, uh, has been has been liable to to closure, um, to uh, uh, to being overruled by government. So I think it's been a, a very dispiriting time. Um, over the last eighteen months or so, uh, safety has been everything, freedom has been nothing. Uh, we've put a value on life itself, almost priceless, uh, and effectively we've put a value on living, uh, almost worthless. And, and I think this has been a, a serious derangement of our normal priorities and our normal approach to things. Now, my hope is that uh, having lived through this absolutely dispiriting time, this incredibly vexing to the spirit time, um, when we do come out on the other side, and uh, in New South Wales that should start uh, in about a month, in Victoria hopefully it will start within a couple of months, uh, having been effectively deprived of our normal freedom, having been effectively deprived of our normal ability to control our lives, we will cherish that freedom. We will savour that autonomy more than ever before and we will make more of it in the future than we've made of it in the past because we've gone through this dreadful experience of being infantilized by government. Yeah, I agree with you, Tony. I think there's a lot to that. I, um, 
I caught up with a couple of our neighbours the other day for a barbecue, which is something we haven't been able to do for a while, and we've we've all got kids and they're Apple all was outside around. and uh, you mate, were fully we, masked at all times we were, when you weren't we were, actually consuming food and drink, and I hope there was no alcohol involved. We were following the law, um, <laughs> and um, but it, it was just a reminder of of uh, how important those you know what you would have thought of as somewhat you know trivial everyday interactions are, and I, I think you're right that. We will appreciate our our freedoms and our local communities and small businesses and the things that have really suffered over the last couple of years. I reckon that there will be a renewed sort of enthusiasm. Well, I I so hope you're right, Daniel. I want to believe that's the case. Uh, There would have to be quite, quite a lot of small business people, though, that have given up uh, after having been closed down in Victoria for the sixth time. Uh, after having been closed down here in New South Wales uh, so far, I think about 11 weeks and counting, um, all those youngsters that uh, have had two years of their school and university stolen from them, uh, all those people who um, would like to be getting out and about and and, and meeting perhaps a life partner who haven't been able to do so for the last, uh, for the best part of two years, that that will leave, I think, uh, a lasting scar, but um, the post-war period uh, uh, was a period of, uh, <clears throat> of great vitality and vigour uh, in this country, um, even after the Great War, despite the pall of death uh, and the funereal sense which uh, haunted so many societies, uh, they did manage the Roaring Twenties as well. So <laughs> let's hope we have another version of the Roaring Twenties coming up. Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I certainly hope so. One thing that has, I think, united Australians and brought the best out of Australians is our, our sense of volunteering and our sense yeah. of community spirit. And I did want to uh, discuss with you volunteering uh, and, and the broader, I guess, institutions of, of civic society and how that binds us together. And you're somebody who has a lot of experience and, and demonstrated a lot of leadership in your local community whether it's with firefighting, whether it's with your work in Indigenous communities, uh, whether it's with your experience in surf lifesaving. Um, so I want to explore all of that. What I wanted to start with was to get your assessment and insights into why volunteering is so essential to the Australian way of life and the Australian character as we know it today. Well, Daniel, it's not the things we have to do. It's the things we choose to do that are the measure of us. Um, it's not what we do for money, it's what we do for love, which is really the sign of our quality as, as human beings. And I think it has long been a characteristic of Australian society, probably of English-speaking societies generally, but particularly of Australian society, where if we see a problem, uh, we don't sit around and complain that the government hasn't done enough. Uh, we roll up our sleeves and we do what we can, whether it be Neighbourhood Watch, whether it be Clean Up Australia Day, uh, or whether it be in a more enduring and arguably more important sense, things like the volunteer bushfire brigades, uh, the volunteer surf clubs, um, you know, all the volunteer sports associations, uh, the volunteer groups that spring up around hospitals and churches, the volunteer social welfare groups like St Vincent de Paul, uh, the Smith family, etc. 
Um, these are all signs that when Australians see a problem, uh, instead of shrugging their shoulders and walking by, uh, instead of demanding that someone else do something about it, their natural instinct is to say, well, if not me, who? And in company, normally with others, uh, doing what they can uh, to help. Now, uh, <laughs> I can remember quite a few years ago, back in uh, 1994 it was, uh, Margie and I were living in Fox Valley Road, uh, Warunga, just on the edge of Lane Cove National Park. Um, I was coming home from work one stinking hot day in uh, December and I could see the flames leaping up uh, um, near Ride Bridge and I thought to myself, my God, uh, uh, this is not, uh, not great. Uh, I did manage finally to get home uh, around the traffic diversions and all was well. But I made a resolution then and there that I was going to join the local bushfire brigade. And uh, as it happened, um, not long after, I became a member of parliament. So nothing came of that resolution then. But uh, the week after the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, we had a very bad bushfire in Bantry Bay in my electorate. And... I remember on the Friday I was out door knocking in Kalani Heights and there were fireballs rolling up the hill on the other side of uh, uh, of the bay um, towards uh, Manly Dam. And, and I thought, this is pretty damn serious. And on the Sunday I was down at Nippers uh, talking to uh, one of the other Nippers parents whose kids were at school with mine and uh, were both uh, in the Nippers. And I said to my friend Ray, I said, that fire must have come pretty close to you on Friday. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, on Friday night, I was on my veranda having a few drinks and the poor buggers down the end of the street uh, in their uniforms with their truck were trying to put out the fire. He said, I, felt, I, felt, I feel so guilty. I want to join the fire brigade. And I said, well, mate, I will come with you. So the two of us went up later that day, uh, signed up, and 20-odd years later, I'm still there. <laughs> Ray did uh, 10 years of service before a couple of health issues meant that he couldn't really continue. But uh, this is how it happens. You see a problem, uh, you think, if I'm not prepared to do anything about it, who is? And away you go. Do you think that spirit is still with us? Um, we know that government has got a lot bigger, a lot more intrusive. Does Is there still something you know, fairly fundamental to the Australian character that means that people are still going to roll up their sleeves and, and, and fix things? Or have we become a little bit more a little bit more passive, a little bit more apathetic? What do you think? Again, it's a very good question. Um, I, I think it's not so much that we've become passive. I suspect it might be more that we have become more... Uh, fastidious in terms of qualifications, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, uh, specifications, uh, safetyism, if you like. Uh, I mean, I can remember back in uh, uh, back in two thousand uh, when that uh, Bantry Bay fire uh, was uh, was first happened. Uh, um, before the Sunday when I was chatting to my mate Ray, um, 
I'd rung up Fire Control, the local Fire Control, and I said, look, you know, I'm Tony Abbott, I'm the local member, how can I be helpful? And they said to me, well, if you're not trained, you can't be helpful. So they put me back in my box, so to speak. And uh, uh, Ray and I did go through the training. uh, And in those days, the training was basically a couple of weekends um, to get your, 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 your basic competency. Now, my fear is that the obstacle to volunteerism is, is less a decline in our civic-mindedness mm. but more a rise in the requirements for people doing anything with others. And, and this is where I think we have to uh, draw a reasonable balance between expecting, um, if you like, uber-professionalism uh, and being prepared to accept uh, that people come to these things with certain basic abilities and putting them to good use. Uh, Tony, I just want to ask you something about how being a, a volunteer and a volunteer firefighter in particular has has influenced your, your outlook on life. Um, I can imagine that facing massive walls of fire, uh, putting your life on the line, really would help put politics and, and public life in, into perspective. Did, did, do you find that that helped you um, get a get a better perspective of things in, in life and made you a better, more rounded person as a result? There's, there's no doubt that uh, you can easily get caught up in this political bubble, um, particularly mm. when you're a minister in a government. Um, you're very busy. Uh, you've got a large staff. You're always in meetings. You're always doing important, in inverted commas, things. And it is possible to get, I think, quite detached from the real world. I used to find going down to do a surf patrol on a Sunday with people who paid very little attention to politics on a day-to-day basis, going off to do a duty crew uh, on a Sunday with people who didn't regard you as anything special just because you were a cabinet minister. It, it was um, therapeutic in the best sense of the word. It kept you grounded. Uh, it stopped you from uh, being too big for your boots. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, really important. I can remember the first time I put my hand up to be a deputy captain in the brigade uh, back in uh, 2007, I was – the leader of the House of Representatives at the time, I'd been a cabinet minister for something like seven or eight years, and I was beaten uh, for the last deputy captain's position uh, by a guy who at that stage was a mechanic between jobs. Now, <laughs> it, the, the brigade made the right decision because the guy in question, who's a friend of mine uh, and now works full-time for the RFS, was a better firefighter. Uh, but it was probably good for me, good for my soul, and an interesting illustration of Australian egalitarianism uh, that the cabinet minister was beaten by the motor mechanic for that particular position. Yeah, it's, look, it's a great, it's a great story, and of course, you are you are still a deputy captain now, aren't you? You did later become a deputy captain. And look, you, I, you- I, I did become a deputy captain in two thousand and eight. 
uh, I had to quit when I became opposition leader in 2009, uh, and the brigade was good enough to have me back as a deputy captain when I when I left Parliament. I can remember uh, my first operational deployment, Daniel. Uh, it was uh, a Sunday at the beginning of 2001. I think it was the first Sunday in 2001, and uh, and we were on a duty crew and at about three o'clock the radio crackled into life um, asking uh, for crews to uh, deploy overnight to Wyong because there was a fire that they were worried about up there and the skipper turned around and said to us in the back seat are you guys available for a overnight deployment now I'd just been promoted to cabinet at the time and I was supposed to be in Canberra the following morning for a cabinet subcommittee meeting and I thought to myself if I tell these guys that I'm not available because I've got to go to Canberra for cabinet, they will never take me seriously again. Mm. So I took a deep breath and I said, I'm available. And as the truck was screaming up the expressway uh, to Wyong, I rang my office and said, you're going to have to tell them that I'm going to be late to this meeting in Canberra tomorrow. <laughs> Don't explain why, but just say something's come up. Anyway, we did our bit um, and we saved uh, the outskirts of Wyong from this fire. And I finally got down to Canberra about midday that morning, a couple of hours late for the meeting, smelling like a barbecue. And as I walked in to the meeting, someone said to me, oh, where, where, where were you, Tony? And I said, oh, I got called out with a local fire brigade last night. And my cabinet colleague said, oh, Tony, you're a cabinet minister now. And I said to her, I said, you know, you've got to be a human being before you can be a cabinet minister. Now, it was, a, it was a spontaneous remark, one of the few spontaneous remarks that actually hits the spot. And, and I think that's absolutely right. You do have to be a human being before you can be a cabinet minister. And things like this definitely do help to, pe pe help to keep people grounded. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing it, Tony. And I think that's a, a, a great spot for us to to move to our uh, Tell Tony Abbott segment, which is uh, our favourite part of the podcast where our listeners get the opportunity to um, have a chat with us and, and to ask Tony their questions uh, of um, the day. And just before we get to those questions, I'd just like to remind everybody, um, wherever you're listening to this podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, uh, to subscribe or like uh, to make sure that you don't miss an episode. Tony, a couple of questions that um, I want to get to. The first is from Paul, and Paul has a question about getting our freedoms back and, and what do we have to do, and this is Paul's, uh, Paul's question. What can we do uh, to get our freedoms back from these state premiers who don't want to give up their power? Well, we've just got to keep uh, making our voices heard, and whether it's sending an email to your local member, um ringing up talkback radio, mm. if you're on social media, saying you're two bobs worth on, on social media, uh, talking to your family, to your friends, uh, to your neighbours, etc. cetera. Mm. We, we've just got to say, look, um, we cannot let fear of dying stop us from living. Uh, we cannot be so obsessed with one particular virus that all the other concerns of life are allowed to go by the board. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. Um, 
I want to go to our, our next question, which is from Clarissa. And Clarissa's question is about the the mayhem that we saw in Melbourne yesterday at the CFMEU uh, headquarters. Um, and Clarissa's question is this. Uh, the pro- well, it's more of a statement, actually. The, the protest of construction workers against their union, the CFMEU, about mandatory vaccination shows leaders of unions don't care about workers anymore. Um, Tony, how would you respond to Clarissa's uh, observation? I don't think anyone should uh, break the law, but I can certainly understand people resenting uh, what they see as bad laws and wanting to protest against them. I don't think the problem of -of out-of-touch leadership is confined to the CFMEU. I think Mm. this is a problem across the board today. Uh, The difference between the elites and the mainstream, uh, the difference between the leaders and the led, um, I think this is a widening gulf across the board. Now, I encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, I'm certainly vaccinated myself and I got vaccinated as quickly as I could because I wanted to, I didn't want government to have any excuse not to give us back our freedoms as quickly as possible. But if for whatever reason uh, people don't want to get vaccinated, um, unless they're in very specific occupations like working in nursing homes or working uh, with the very vulnerable, You've just got to allow people to make their own choices. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you, Tony, and thank you to all of our listeners. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I'll talk to you next week. Good on you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott, and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.